Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we are talking about San Diego artists and their inspiration. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. Grammy Award-winning actress Eva Noblezada explains the artistry behind her work. If I'm going to be an artist, I feel like part of my responsibility is is creating an outsource for people to see that they're not alone and then maybe share a laugh and then maybe be inspired by something and then we go on our merry way. Plus, Alana Quintana writes romance novels against the backdrop of social justice issues. And we'll talk to Anne Hamilton, who created art to be walked on. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. Eva Noblezada is an actress, two-time Tony Award nominee and Grammy Award winner. First discovered in 2013, she debuted in the first ever revival of Miss Saigon on the West End. She's since been in musicals like Le Mis and the highly acclaimed Town, which premiered on Broadway in 2019. And she has a multitude of projects under her belt, including films like Lucky, Yellow Rose, and Easter Sunday. She's also a San Diego native, Earlier this year, she performed in a three-night, one-woman show called Nostalgia, a love letter to NYC. The full show is out on Audible, and Eva joins us now. Welcome to you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. So first, I'm curious about your upbringing here. Is there anything about your childhood here that really resonated with you? Oh my gosh, yes. It's almost like I remember more of my childhood in San Diego than I remember anywhere else. I remember we used to go to SeaWorld a lot. We would go to Coronado Beach, get a bucket of KFC and sit by those like big like fire pit things and just listen to the ocean and have (laughs) fried chicken. And yeah, I I was lucky enough to have both sides of my family living in San Diego, literally right down the street from each other. So I was really surrounded by my entire family for most of my early upbringing. So I was very, very lucky to have that. Yeah, that is great. You've said before that you came out of your mom singing and your dad (laughs) was a music teacher. Um, Did you always know you were going to be a performer? Well, I didn't know that was a job until I, (laughs) I, until we moved to North Carolina and I saw, you know, I started to understand, oh, people go on stage and sing for money and that can be like a career path. So I didn't really understand that until I was like 10 or 11. And then I really, really started to like kind of be obsessed with wanting to be a performer. But I would say from a young age, I was just really always wanting to tell a story or be involved with any type of storytelling, any movie or or TV show that would be on TV. I would just kind of sit and just want to be completely immersed in that 
in that show in that world. So I, I knew that I was always kind of destined for being in the arts. Yeah. And Ella Fitzgerald was also a, a big inspiration for you, right? Yes, she was. My dad, he was kind of my first, you know, not kind of, was absolutely my first big music inspiration. He, you know, would always be playing different genres of music, including Ella. Thank God for Ella. And definitely a lot of music like Santana and um, a lot of jazz, a lot of Louis Armstrong. And it just really filling the house with different sounds and in order to, you know, really encourage my musicality. And, you know, he was the first person to put me next to piano and work with me on my arpeggio. So my dad is really the reason why I started to get really serious about it when I was a kid. Great, great. And I want us to take a listen to when you performed Cheek to Cheek in your show. Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And I want to talk about your Mexican and Filipino heritage. In your show, you talk about growing up in a Mexican and Filipino household. Tell us more about that. Yeah, um, I feel very lucky, like I said, to have been able to live with both sets of my uh, grandparents. So it would be as simple and as awesome as like waking up in the morning and having my my Lola cook us like egg fried rice and my papa would make, you know, fish or whatever. And we'd split a papaya on the table and then walking later in the afternoon, not even two blocks to my Nanantata's house. And there'd be fresh tortillas, there'd be, you know, Mexican food there. And just, I guess I'm talking about food because it's, I'm, I'm, a, I'm hungry, but it's more just like being surrounded, <laughs> by, being surrounded by just both of who I am, like the cultures and, and really feeling completely whole with, within my family and within my culture, which, which is awesome. It was just such a lucky thing to have as a young child. It just, I feel like it created such a strong foundation of like family to me, which is amazing. So you moved from San Diego to North Carolina uh, then in 2013, you were a finalist in the prestigious National High School Musical Theater Awards. Uh, uh, musical fans know it as the Jimmy Awards. So what was it like to perform on that New York stage for the first time? Oh, my gosh. That was kind of the first time in my life where I was like, OK, when we work hard, when we put our body and we put our hearts and minds to focus on, on a goal. We're going to make it. Because I saw my first Broadway show when I was nine or 10, and it was The Lion King, um, which just so happens to be the Minskoff Theater where the National High School Musical Theater Awards take place. And I remember that, you know, as the animals walked down in the aisle, I was bawling my eyes out. And I just remember thinking, like, I'm going to do this one day. I'm going to be in a Broadway show. I'm going to be on Broadway. And that was the stage that I ended up making my Broadway stage debut on because of the Jimmy Award. So it really was a full circle moment. And that's how you got discovered and cast in Miss Saigon on the West End, right? Yes, absolutely. My um my theater teacher, um, Bonnie Fraker, was in the audience um, supporting me and the other fellow Bloomy nominee, um, Ariane Melbusher. And 
her lifelong friend happened to be Tara Rubin, who's a you know, prestigious casting director here in um, New York City. And after the Jimmies that night, Tara and my um, theater teacher got to talking and she was like, Eva has to audition for Miss Saigon. And um, because of that connection, we were able to put two and two together and um, set me up with um, an audition about, I think it was like three or four months later in New York, which just was kind of insane because I was uh, a senior in high school and we were choosing like what colleges to go to. And then all of a sudden I'm auditioning for Kim and Miss Saigon to, that's going to be premiering in London. Like it just, it was kind of, kind of crazy actually looking back at just, you know, how quickly everything happened. I mean, right. I mean, how difficult was it being catapulted into the spotlight so suddenly? The catapult wasn't that difficult. I think that was more exciting. I think the adjustment period of like understanding, okay, I'm a 17 year old. I'm very green. I'm very passionate and I'm very, um, I have a lot to learn. Um, I think the hardest part for me was adjusting to the show schedule, also adjusting to the demands that it would require of my body and of my, just of, you know, my spirit. I think when, when you're really passionate about something and you don't put up certain boundaries that are really healthy for yourself, you tend to, I guess, overgive. And I definitely was um, being asked a way more than I should have been asked at such a young age, being asked to change like my, my weight and my skin and a lot of things that I wasn't expecting to be needed of me to change. I thought that I thought that I was hired because of my performance. But you know, I think the hardest part was just adjusting to like what the industry was going to be like, I didn't really know much about the industry, I just knew about how much I wanted to perform. So that was kind of um Definitely an awakening and maybe harsh at times, but I definitely benefited from all of those important lessons from when I was younger. Mm, indeed. You're also in Town, which follows the love story between the mythological couple Orpheus and Eurydice. It's been on Broadway for about four years now. Has your relationship to your character Eurydice changed since then? Oh, absolutely. I believe Nina Simone made this quote is that an artist's duty is to reflect the times and I feel like after we came back from the pandemic, you know, many of us, including myself, I didn't think that theater was really ever going to come back at a point. That was a definite fear of mine because, you know, 18 months without a job and it didn't look like people were going to feel comfortable going back to a theater without masks on. And then it felt like, oh, we're going to be packed like sardines with our masks on, just like riddled with fear. How are we going to be able to enjoy live a live experience again? And thankfully, you know, the world was able to overcome that fear. And, and I'm so grateful to still be in this incredible show. But it definitely changed my relationship with not just my character, but also how I approach the arts, how I approach my job, you know, definitely with a lot more gratitude than before, considering, you know, now we know how it feels to be completely separated from having a job. But I just felt like I grew as a person. So if the actor is growing and the, the, you know, if the vessel is changing, then the, then the connection to anything else is going to change as well. And if anything, it made it better. I think, I hope it made it better, but I'm so lucky to still be in this show. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm speaking with Eva Noblezada about her personal journey in theater and her solo show, Nostalgia, a love letter to NYC. You know, you've also opened up about your mental health and the trauma you faced and, and continue to face in the industry. How do you protect yourself and stay grounded? 
Wonderful question. I would say um, I've learned in my almost 10 years of professional experience um, that I really enjoy being a person who feels very deeply. However, um, setting the boundaries in my life that keep me protected at all times are very important. So um, just because I love a show so much, if I, my voice isn't feeling 100%, um, it's very important that I learned the lesson of being able to call out without any shame or without any guilt. Another example would be just understanding that the industry is on a living entity. If I feel like the industry is requiring something of me that is false to me or that will leave me in a state where I'm overexhausted, um, I just, I've learned how to say no or not right now. Just being able to like take in stock of how my body feels, which is just super important because we use our bodies every single day. I mean, not just when we're on stage, like it takes us throughout our whole life. So being able to really take care of it and take care of my brain and understand that everything's very interconnected was a, was a long life lesson for me. And I'm very grateful that I'm starting to finally understand what that takes because I feel like much like my feet are on solid ground now, rather than um, how I kind of felt before. But I think, you know, it's just always important to just be yourself I talk about mental health because like, that's something that I feel like a lot of people just feel not everyone feels great all the time. And I can absolutely relate to that. So if I'm going to be an artist, I feel like part of my responsibility is, is creating an outsource for people to see that they're not alone and then maybe share a laugh and then maybe be inspired by something. And then we go on our merry way. For me, that's like the best part about being an artist. So, yeah, no, that's great perspective. And tell us more about putting together this one woman show. Nostalgia was the first time I, it was in a freaking actual theater and it was being recorded um, for Audible, which I am a huge fan of Audible and I love audiobooks. This was, that was the first time that happened in that context. Um, and I had never done one before where I needed a script and where I was going to do it three times in a row. I'm definitely more of a um, one night only kind of girl. Uh, definitely a live type of, of theater galley. That was an, an amazing learning experience. And I was definitely riddled with nerves for most of it, but I was, it's an experience that I'll never, ever forget. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. It really felt monumental to me, and I can—I still can't believe that people bought tickets to that. I don't know. Just for me, I can't believe that happened. Still, I'm still a little bit in shock. <laughs> <laughs> and looking back, um, what would you say to your younger self now? Oh, I would probably, firstly, give her a hug and ask her if she's okay, and let her vent a little bit. And then I would probably say, try thinking of life as not as hard. <laughs> I feel like I read this quote on Instagram the other day that kind of broke me in the best way. It was like people who feel people who feel through life end up thinking of it as a tragedy. Like, and I thought that was so romantic. That's just how I feel, unfortunately. But I, I do think that I, you know, people who feel deeply and, and go through life feeling it sometimes can feel so just like tragic and just dramatic. And I, if you can find a way to like source that out to like transform that tragedy into something beautiful for yourself. That is the ultimate superpower. That's the ultimate magic that you can create for yourself. And that evening was 
those three evenings of doing nostalgia was like the perfect way to do that for me. And it really kind of, I was able to like stamp that moment in my life and be like, you did that. You were nervous and you were so afraid of being judged and you were a little harsh on yourself, but you did that and we did it well. We did the best we could. So yeah, I would say to younger Eva, enjoy, be kinder to yourself and um, love yourself as much as possible. And I would also say, in moments where anxiety starts to like make you second guess yourself and doubt yourself, choose a thought that you can really put all of your feeling behind. So if it's like, I love performing, I love theater, you know, you can put all your feeling behind that and like really at least focus on that, focus on something that like makes you feel very good. Even if it's one small thing. Yeah. I've been speaking with Eva Noblezada. Eva's solo show, Nostalgia, A Love Letter to NYC, is out on Audible now. Eva, thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, we'll talk to a writer who's retelling Shakespeare with social justice as a backdrop for romance in her new book. It's always been one that I've absolutely hated. So if you had asked me in college when I was studying Shakespeare, if I would write a taming of the true retelling, I would have been like, "Ah, absolutely not. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Last year, local author Alana Quintana Albertson published Ramon and Julieta, a Latinx spin on Romeo and Juliet set in Barrio Logan. NPR named it one of the best books of 2022. Now she is back with a new book, Kiss Me, Mia Moore, the second installment in her Love and Taco series. It follows Enrique. The Smooth Talking aired, and Carolina, one of the few Latina farm owners in California's Central Valley. It's a reset of The Taming of the Shrew, complete with fake dating shenanigans, a love for Mexican cuisine, and an exploration of California's farming communities. Alana joins us now to talk more about the book. Alana, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you so much for having me. So, First, you drew on some of your own family history as inspiration for this story. Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I always really was fascinated by my mom's huge family. And growing up, it was, I assumed everyone had really big families. My mom is nine of 10 and there were nine sisters and a brother. And so I have so many cousins. Um, I can't even count <laughs> that. And, <laughs> you know, I would meet people who would have one or, or, you know, their families would have one or two siblings. And, and so I was just always fascinated with that family dynamic. And so it was really something that I wanted to um, play with. And when I was thinking of the framework of Shakespeare and with Taming the True, of a big family and a kind of traditional values. I just thought, oh, this is the perfect thing to kind of tell the story of my mom's big Mexican family. Hmm. And, you know, the taming of the shrew has been the subject of feminist critique because of its portrayal of gender roles. Yes. Um, But it's since been adapted plenty of times. So why did you choose this particular story to retell? What an excellent question. And it's so problematic that I was like, oh, do I do this? And, you know, and and I actually saw um, every time I um, write a retelling, I actually go and see um, 
see a live production of it. I mean, obviously I read it as well, but I like to see it. And so the old globe did an amazing version of it. Um, And so, you know, I really wanted to, I mean, not fix it, you know, and kind of change it and give the power back to her and not have her being a shrew, but at the same time play with the fact I have a line in there that she's a shrewd businesswoman. And so, you know, kind of how women that are successful are, you know, sometimes are, are then considered problematic, but, you know, Mm -hmm. but if, but if a a man does something very similar, it's powerful. So I did enjoy, um, you know, trying to play with this play, but yeah, it's always been one that I've absolutely hated. So if you had asked me in college when I was studying Shakespeare, if I would write a taming of the true telling, I would have been like, "Uh, absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hard no. (laughs) Yeah. Hard no. There you go. And so the main leads come from different worlds here. Carolina is a family farm owner and Enrique is heir to this huge taco chain. Um, Where do we find these characters at the start and what can we expect to see from their journey? Yeah, um, I really wanted to kind of focus on the culture clash of Carolina being from a very traditional Mexican family. And, you know, it was so interesting because of some of the criticism I've received in the book, they'll be like, oh, well, that's not realistic. And people aren't really like that. Well, you know, there are some, you know, people and cultures who are definitely still very traditional, even though they live in America, you know. And so I thought it was so interesting to have Enrique, who's, you know, third generation and, you know, very laid back, very modern, very progressive. I actually love him as a hero and to kind of try to interact in this world where it's completely unfathomable to him that her father has these very specific gender roles and concepts of them even being alone together and what dating is and, you know, asking her to come and, you know, court the family. And it's just like kind of shell shock, fish out of water for him to interact with that. But I really kind of wanted to show that even though, you know, cultures, I I think a lot of times when you're an author where you write about a culture and that there isn't a lot of representation, you know, you know, people kind of want to see themselves representative it. And, you know, just for like, we're not a monolith, like not all Mexicans are the same. And there's, you know, a big difference. And I, and I know that like with my own perspective, it's like, you know, I don't represent everybody. So I really kind of wanted to show kind of different parts of the culture and, you know, different ways it is today and kind of, you know, have people see that in a book. Yeah. And you hit on something so fascinating, and I want to know more about it. I mean, how did you explore patriarchal expectations and gender roles in this book? Yeah, it was very painful (laughs) for me. Um, (laughs) It was was really a a struggle, you know, because again, you know, a criticism where I'll see something reviews like, you know, I, I hated her father or I you know, couldn't relate to that or, you know, people aren't still still like that. But I wanted first off to show a little bit of empathy from where he's coming from because he was raised actually in Mexico and, you know, he's trying to adapt into the society and it's just hard for him to, you know, try to see his daughter as this woman with kind of her own agency. One of the most painful scenes, you know, he's so disgusted that she can't cook and he warns Enrique that, you know, he should not date her because she can't cook. She'd make a horrible housewife. And so, um, you know, again, this, you know, it's writing someone that you're like, totally don't agree with anything. And then I had Enrique as a foil going like, what's wrong and trying to educate him, you know, but with empathy, because I think that, you know, a lot of the things in the culture is it's, you know, it's very easy for us to say, oh, you know, how can you think this way or whatever. And so I think it's very interesting to kind of see how people are coming from and then yet still kind of say, hey, that's not okay. Or, you know, like, maybe you can think of it this way. Um, So, 
it, it was very hard to write. Um, and it was, I'd say almost painful to write. And these are things, you know, that I've experienced in my family. Um, so, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a book, but yeah, <laughs> therapy, right? Little therapy. I gotcha. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Carolina is the eldest of 10 daughters. Do you think there's greater pressure on the eldest daughter to be the most responsible in their families? Absolutely. And especially in immigrant families, you'll see a lot of stuff. And I've seen a lot of stuff on TikTok where, you know, the eldest is also the translator and, you know, kind of navigates the world for them. And in this family, you know, he wanted a son. He's a farm worker. And he just always thought that he would have the son that would carry on. They have 10 children. They're all girls. And so, you know, he he kind of reluctantly, when she takes over the farm, allows to see her in that role as of being powerful eldest daughter and everything. But at the same time, he still sees her as a woman and he still has that expectation. And so she has all this pressure on her from all these sides. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, her journey is Enrique is always like, you know, you can do this alone. And and it's unfathomable for her to kind of break away from her family and, and, and trying to have her own own life. But I think the eldest, and I'm not the eldest, I'm a little spoiled youngest. <laughs> but um, I, I definitely think that the eldest has so much pressure, especially in family uh, families like Carolina's. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm speaking with Alana Quintana Albertson about her latest book, Kiss Me, Me Amore. So, Alana, I'm curious about the role that place plays in your books. I mean, you've said that your stories and your series, rather, is a love letter to California and San Diego. So tell us more about that. Yeah, um, obviously, I'm obsessed with with California. I lived here my entire life. I'll never leave. Um, I used to call myself real California Chica. So I just, I love California. I'm from Northern California, but, um, you know, I, I just am in love with the state. So all of the, this series, half of it play takes place in San Diego because the brothers live in San Diego. So you will see scenes in Bird Rock, La Jolla, Barrio Logan, again, like with the first book, but in the second book, I really wanted to show central California and farm workers areas where my family's lived. And then the third book in the series, which isn't out, um, will be in Northern California, where I'm actually from, and also San Diego. But, you know, uh, what's so incredible about California, you know, they always have that joke. I think it was in Jerry Maguire's, like, you know, you can ski and surf, you know, I mean, we have, you know, it's not just San Diego and the beautiful beaches, you know, we've got all the forests in Northern California, all the farm, and it's just so wonderful. So yeah, each Each book kind of explores an area that I love. Hmm, That's great. I mean, and and this is the Love and Tacos series. So food is a major focus. Uh, Are you a foodie? I'm such a foodie, but I'm not a cook. And one of my favorite things about this book is that Carol, I love to eat. I'm <laughs> um, like all the time. Um, but um, that, you know, Carolina doesn't cook and that's kind of a thing. And he cooks. He says that, you know, it doesn't matter. I will cook. So yes, I'm an absolute foodie. Um, again, I'm from Northern California. So I would go to the wine country and yeah, all the restaurants and that San Diego scene has been so incredible. Um, so yes, I'm an absolute, I'm an eater, (laughs) not not a chef. (laughs) Well, hey, the Mexican food here in Southern California is amazing, right? The best. Every time I think I say, oh, I'm going to move back up north and I'm like, but where would I eat my tacos? Like, it's just not the same. It's so incredible. So, (laughs) 
I want to talk about the themes in your books. You explored gentrification in Barrio Logan through Ramon and Julieta. Now in Kiss Me, Mia Moore, you're writing about workers' rights and small family-owned farms, ethical farming. Um, Why is it important for you to write about the major uh, deep issues here? Yeah, it's so important for me because to me, I believe reading educates and I want on the surface of my book, anyone can pick my book up, me cute little beach read, have fun and enjoy it. And you've got the romance and all that kind of fun, frothy fun. But all of my books, you know, have a deeper issue. So, you know, the first one's about gentrification or specifically gentrification when a member of their own community gentrifies the community. And this one is about farm workers' rights. Um, and and the reason I, I think it is, is I don't think people... Um, you know, in, in these communities, like we, we can't turn it off. We can't just be like, oh, well, I'm just going to have this fun, frothy romance and kind of not think about, um, issues that, that affect us every single solitary day and affect our community every day. So I want them to have this beautiful love story, but I also kind of want you to think when you've read, finished the book about, you know, what's, what's okay. And Enrique, he's trying to do the right thing, but he's kind of clueless. Like he's just like, oh, I'll partner with an ethical farm and everything will be right. You know, and, and people, you know, oh, I'll buy some organic berries and it's fine. And I all assuage my guilt, you know, but I wanted him to kind of really understand not just a bandaid and kind of what is really happening with the farms um, that he currently is contracting with and what his responsibility in that is versus just like, oh, I'll just fire them and and, and move on. So um, it, it's important for me in all my books. And in my third book, um, I, I tackle um, cultural appropriation and, and other issues. So so that's kind of the point of all my fiction. I mean, do you think there's a misconception about the kinds of stories or issues that can be explored in romance? Absolutely. It's a misconception by the people outside of romance, inside romance. Every, I mean, the women in romance and the people who write romance are so incredible and the books are so depth and, and you can see how much, you know, it, it changed the world. But, you know, I've heard things in circles, you know, I went to Stanford, Harvard, they'll be like, oh, when do you want to, are, are you ever going to write a real book? It's like, uh, I've written a real book. Like, and I don't know if that's because it's for women. It focuses on women and pleasure and joy, you know? But I find romance so incredibly powerful. And, you know, I didn't grow up reading romance. In fact, I'd never read a romance. I wrote, wrote a chiclet. My editor said, oh, you should write a romance. And I also have these perceived uh, notions about it. So I'm not immune to this. Like I was a literary snob. I read um, I read literature. My was actually uh, Arthurian lit and literature of passing because I related to that, even though I'm Mexican, um, not Black, the the literature of African-Americans um, passing, and since I'm light-skinned and people kind of didn't consider me Mexican and I consider myself Mexican, that literature called me. So I really believed in like all this like amazing literature, and I never saw myself kind of as a writer. I mean, I'd never even read any popular fiction, let alone romance. And so that was kind of my journey later in life. And now, of course, I love it because I feel like you can reach so many people and then still kind of talk about social issues. And you see so much great stuff like this going on right now with stuff on women's rights and whatever. And it, it's kind of subtly layered. And I think it's just beautiful. Yeah. And you you hinted at this, but what's next for the Love and Taco series? 
So I am finishing. It's like almost done. My editor's listening. I love you. Um, the third book in the series, which is um, called My Fair Senor. And it's about the third brother. Um, his name is Jaime and he's kind of a playboy prince. And so he be, he's a social media influencer and he is asked to be the Mexican face of a Caucasian tequila brand owned by celebrities. And it kind of bothers him, you know, that he's always done this. So he decides to start his own tequila company and he partners with his ex, who is a female sommelier up in Northern California, but she's also a tequila master, tequila Dora. And so um, he's kind of learning all this stuff about it. And prior to that, he didn't do it. And so I talk about a lot of issues there. It's set in my hometown, but I, you know, talk about other things like that. You know, he's the kind of the bad boy of the three brothers. The first one was kind of the eldest, most responsible. Enrique is really cool, laid back middle child. And Jaime is a bit of a problem, but we, but we, <laughs> we work on him in the book. So. All right. All right. Uh, looking forward to that. I've been speaking with Alana Quintana Albertson about her new book, Kiss Me, Mia Moore. She will celebrate with a book launch at Meet Cute Romance Bookshop tomorrow at 7 p.m., Alana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to talk to you. Coming up, we'll talk to an artist whose new installment is meant to be walked on. When work is placed in public in different contexts, whether that's inside or outside, in many cases, I think what it does is it invites a kind of what I might call an act of finding. That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. You know, most people probably think of art as something hanging in a gallery, not to be touched. But Anne Hamilton designed her public art installation, Knopp, to tell a story as art to be walked on every day by hundreds of students entering the UC San Diego campus. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando explores this latest addition to the Stewart Collection and speaks with the artist who created it. So, Anne, before we start talking about Knopp to tell a story, which is the art piece that you created for the Stewart Collection, I wanted to ask you, what do you feel is the definition of public art? I suppose the simple answer to that would be that it's art in public, but then you would have the question about what is the public and what is art. For me, perhaps I'm less interested in uh, the definition of it as a term that maybe has limited use, but more what is the experience of the things that we encounter in public space? You know, that so many people's experiences of art might be more destination specific, you know, going to a gallery or going into a museum or going uh, with the intention of or the expectation of seeing art. And when work is placed in public in different contexts, whether that's inside or outside, in many cases, I think what it does is it invites a kind of what I might call an act of finding, something that you didn't expect that you find. And in that finding, uh, a whole experience unfolds. I think that often works in public too. um, They're just there to be recognized, to be found, and in some ways also are 
anonymous. They're not necessarily tethered or attached to a particular artist or person. Uh, you know, from my own really rather limited experience doing works in public art, I'm very interested in, you know, what is the way it invites your experience into it? And, and that's had a lot to do with then how I think about structuring the projects. So I went to UC San Diego and got to experience the Stewart Collection firsthand. It commissions artists to do site-specific art. So it's not about just buying a piece of art and dropping it onto the campus. Right. So for you, how did this new trolley station inspire you to create Kanop, this 800-foot pathway made up of 20,000 handcrafted pavers, each bearing a textured word? The conversation with the former director and founder, really, of the Stuart Collection, Mary Beebe, started so, so many years ago. And it was an invitation to come to campus to see the collection, to think about what I might want to respond to and to bring form to in, in response. And I'm not a person who has worked very much outside and mostly at that point and for many years was doing only really ephemeral installations. So I would say it took me a really long time to come to form. But that really the thing that catalyzed that is that it was when I think the opportunity of the huge construction project with the tram started. And Mary and Matthew understood that the tram was going to be passing through a canyon and bringing this whole new entrance to campus. And was that a condition for which it would be very interesting to respond. And, and of course, it was immediately. And we were thinking about the fact that the arrival of this transportation system for the first time bringing people to campus, which then forms a whole new entrance into the university and obviously into a world that is really structured around language, came forward and uh, really intersected with my own work, thinking about how we tactically experience and make the words we use or make the compositions that we use. Because I, I guess what I really what I want to say is that when you walk across this almost 900 foot long pathway, it's the words that catch your attention and the sequences that those end up being placed in your attention because of the pace of walking, that each passage across it is its own composition, just as each student entering the labyrinth of the university is really in many ways making their own program. And when I was walking through it, you know, I was walking straight across and I think it's been referred to as the spine of it. But I noticed that the words in the center were both facing me and then reversed and facing the opposite direction. So immediately that caught my eye because I'm thinking to myself, this is something designed for whichever direction you're going. Exactly. So what we call the spine words or what I call the spine words that structure the entire composition. So it's step by step now becomes then. And so that's a sequence of words that I compose that really just refer to the act of walking through the landscape and across this surface. And then the occurrence of each of those words in another text is what forms the horizontal. And it was very important to structure that spine so that it could read in either direction and still have a kind of uh, rhythmic order and sense. What's interesting to me as I've walked across it is that how quickly we read and easily we 
read words of a certain scale upside down. And then when you do stop on this walkway, then what catches your eye is what's going the opposite direction to what you're walking. And then you start seeing full sentences that go across. Right. So those, I hope, might lead you down the rabbit hole of actually coming to the original text from which they are derived. And there are then more full sentences. There's actually fragments that are sometimes two or three words long that then you connect, you know, as you keep walking. Our eye takes in and scans right to left very organically. And one of the things we did was we worked closely with the library and with special collections. And they have a website that actually has each line referenced um, by its spine word. And you can actually go to the text and its location in the library if you're interested in dipping further down, um, kind of like sound footnotes. You know, sometimes it's a footnotes in a book that, that send you, uh, you know, kind of open, I guess, a door threshold into a whole nother inquiry. Now, you mentioned that a lot of people experience art as destination art, where you're going to a gallery, you're going to a museum. Everyone who's looking up at those walls knows that that's artwork up there and knows that there's this specific kind of relationship you have. <laughs> so how do you feel as an artist having your work as something where people are walking on it. I mean, there's no separation between the art and people, and people can walk on it, realize it's art, or walk on it and just think it's a cement walkway. Well, either is really fine, but I think the, there is a tactile rhythm to it. There's a way, you know, I like to think that our language forms from the way experience seeps up through and out our body. And this, you know, kind of this duet really between how we articulate or find words for our experiences and how our experiences then like make those words. Likely that's not what someone's thinking about as they walk across. But I was talking to someone, the composer, Shiro Katagari, who was working on the opening. He said, you know, I walked out of this meeting and then the first word I found was the word singing. And it was like the word I needed at that exact moment. And, you know, whether you recognize that as art is maybe less important that you just recognize that you've been touched and that your own attention has been drawn. And, and I think that's actually where the arts forms. It's in the way that it draws uh, your attention and then the way you recognize that. I didn't really answer your question, but. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I am just curious. I mean, as an artist, do you feel good, bad, indifferent to the fact that your work is being touched and, and stepped on all the time, as opposed to a painting hanging in a gallery yeah. where there's this distance where, like, if you mm -hmm. were to touch it, the alarms would go off? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I mean, it's meant to be experienced. That's really what it is. So. I love the fact that people are walking on it and touching it. You know, over time, that will become its own document of where. And how do you feel about the work being on a campus? I mean, the Stewart Collection brings all this art to a campus where students are. Mm -hmm. Do you feel there's a different kind of engagement in that kind of a setting than public art that's just in a park or, you know, on a walkway in a city street? I mean, I think it's so, it's such a unique collection. I think works have been commissioned and made there that have been able to be supported by the kind of infrastructure that is very unique to a large research 
public university. And those kinds of projects, it's hard to imagine how some of them might have survived a process that would have, you know, maybe been in the kinds of processes that need to surround approvals, like in a public park. The condition of the campus is also a place of experiment and of study. And so, you know, I think that you have a kind of culture, I think, that's ready to embrace the questions and ready to embrace the experiment that works are. And I would say that's probably not an atmosphere you always find in other public realms. And is there anything else you'd like to add about creating the work itself? Um, Any particular challenges you had in putting this together? Because it is quite a large scale on a certain level. Well, this is a project that was really largely made during COVID. So COVID obviously impacted a lot of the material processes, just getting the material. But I get, you know, what's it, it, it's important to say is that this is a handmade thing, that while the paver dimensions are kind of regular, there is not one paver that is like another in the entire surface. And so, you know, for me, one of the things I think about is that you might not be able to point to it and name it, but there's is a felt quality of introducing something that's irregular into a landscape of really construction that is about regularity. And I think about that relative to the individual experience and the agency of the reader walker passing across that. And that, uh, yeah, the value of this kind of irregularity, it isn't just a flat surface that you walk across. It actually is calling for your attention and what happens in that exchange, because it really is an exchange between, you know, you, your body, the surface you're walking across, the way it also registers and addresses that part of you that is based in language, that those things are really knit and woven together in the experience of the piece. That was Beth Accomando speaking with artist Anne Hamilton. This is part of an ongoing series at KPBS focusing on public art. To see more, go to kpbs.org slash public art. Do you have a favorite piece of public art that you want to share with us? Or do you see value in public art? Give us a call at 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or email us at midday at kpbs.org. Your thoughts may be shared on air. Don't forget to catch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. And tune in tomorrow at noon for The Roundtable with Matt Hoffman. If you ever miss a midday show, you can find the podcast wherever you listen. Before we go, I'd like to thank the Midday Edition team. Our producers are Andrew Bracken, Harrison Patino, and Juliana Domingo with the help of Ariana Clay. Rebecca Chacon and Adrian Villalobos are our technical directors. Art segment producers are Beth Accomando and Julia Dixon-Evans. The music you're hearing is from San Diego's own Surefire Soul Ensemble. I'm Jade Hindman. See you back here Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend, everyone.